I look back at us building a very successful business and everything we're talking about goes back to person-to-person things. If I can't picture having a beer with you, odds are we're not going to do a lot of business together. Numbers don't run a business. Sure, they're a factor in success, but if not paired with a strong foundation of purpose, values, humility, and a willingness to learn, numbers are just numbers. Such is the case for Nick Wagner, an Ontario-based entrepreneur who, with a financial win behind him, is hell-bent on a humanistic approach to business. That approach carried Nick and his co-founder of Premise LED to rapid growth, which was fueled by a competitive edge and eventually to an eight-figure buyout. The key to his success is the relationships he built, be that his partner, team, or even customers. In this episode, he'll share why those relationships were so important to him and how even when he faltered, he never compromised on those values. I'm Don Cameron, and this is the CFO's Diary, Pathways to Growth a podcast where I use my four decades of experience as a CFO consultant to analyze success stories from businesses across the country. Let's meet Nick Wagner. Can you walk me through a little bit of just your personal background? I grew up in a family of four kids in Oakville, Ontario. I come from a family of either salespeople or politicians. I got into high school thinking about university and my father telling me, well, we can't afford it, so you can't go. Mm. This, of course, was when my brother was in university, getting a wonderful education. At that time, I was working at Beaver Lumber. They offered me a full-time job when I graduated high school and offered to put me into their management training program. That was my first little taste of structured, serious work. But I was always very ambitious and, and sort of driven, constantly looking to make the next move You know, in my adult life, I think I've had six jobs, maybe seven, sort of after the age of 20. And they were always these big steps up. Mm, Each time was a progress. Yeah. Just was always sticking my nose in things and self-educating. And I haven't spent a day in a a classroom since I was 17 years old. Mm. You know, I've been very much mentored at all stages of my career and was always very open to it, hungry for it. What was the motivator or the thing that started you along the path to creating CORE, which became Premise LED? I had lost my one and only job in my life. And I had a a very good friend through business who had a business opportunity. And I jumped on that. Wasn't exactly a big success, but it gave me that taste of doing more than just being the sales guy, like actually trying to figure out how do you run a business? Once that died. I was back looking for work. And I remember Googling. I literally wanted to try and find (laughs) what was a hot market that wouldn't shrink on me. And up came LED lighting. I then Googled Toronto LED companies. And I found a little lighting company. And a, a week later, I was their national sales manager. My gosh. Yeah. I just sort of pushed my way right into their business and and spent two years there. And during that time, met my future partner, Marcus, we kind of found ourselves working on projects together and driving back and forth to job sites and going, man, we could do this so much better than the guys that own this company. Why don't they do this? And why don't they do that? 
The company, Premise LED, jumped on the disruption that LED tech was having on the commercial construction markets. In just 11 years, the team that Nick and his partner Marcus put together took a bite out of it with significant profitable growth. So much so, it caught the eye of the private equity sector. And eventually we went out and found a lender, a private lender who would give us some startup money and we went and bought a container of not even LED, CFL light bulbs, just so that we could get some cash flow started. And that's where it started. Two guys selling light bulbs out of the trunk of their car. Every once in a while you meet somebody and while you may not realize it at the moment, they're a true partner who can get you through difficult times. Marcus, for instance, stepped up for Nick at a time when he needed it more than ever, solidifying their bond as associates, but also friends. You know, I think everybody starts a business thinking it's going to be wonderful and glorious and just this sprint to success. Once you get into it, you realize it's, it's really nothing like that. Right. It's, uh, it's an incredible grind. So for Marcus and I, we were able to kind of help each other through all that. We both did everything in the beginning. And so we could spell the other person when, when they were sort of running out of energy. You know, another thing happened in the early days of our startup, about, uh, about a year into our business, my wife passed away. Oh, okay. Uh, quite suddenly and unexpectedly. And sort of what happened in the, in the following months, you know, how much Marcus stepped up and showed that he was my partner and that we were going to get through it was just phenomenal. And it created a, an incredible level of trust, you know, and then you, you realize that there's going to be ebbs and flows as an entrepreneur in a startup. And if you have to absorb them all alone, it's tough. But if you've got a partner who can pick you up when you're down and vice versa, the lows don't get very low. You know, so I'm, I'm a big proponent of partnerships while at the same time being quite terrified of them because you hear stories <laughs> of people who don't get that good match. Yeah. And it really hurts the business. Yeah. Somehow along the way, you guys both understood that each of you will be good partners to the other. And that seemed to come from right from the start. Yeah, absolutely. When, when we started, when we incorporated, we were 50-50 partners, not a little bit one way or the other. It was 50-50. And we said from day one, we're coming in together and we're going out together. And that's just the way this is going to be. And we stuck to that, you know, for 11 years. Trust me, there were plenty of times where we screamed at each other and stormed out of the, the office. But then a short time later, when you calm down, you realize that's my partner. I'm going to succeed with him. And that's the only path. And once you get all that crap out of the way, you get back to focusing on business. Like all relationships, a business partnership takes effort and commitment. Nick and Marcus understood this. When you succeed, your partner succeeds and vice versa. So it's essential to take the relationship seriously and put in the work. This show of commitment and care was extended to the entire team at CORE, which had now become Premise LED. We went from sort of nothing to about a $3 million company. And then we sort of hit a little bit of critical mass, expanded our sales force. And all of a sudden, the next year, we went from three to, I think it was $7 million. Marcus and I sort of decided at that time that you know, we were always going to try and be ahead of the curve. 
we started trying to proactively hire for the company we were going to be in six months. That allowed us to get people in, spend some time training them, trying to see if they were a fit. And I'm not going to lie, we turned over a bunch of people because we had a very specific go-to-market strategy. We were hyper-customer focused. We had sayings in our office that every employee could have told you. You know, things like, you know, the answer is yes, unless there's an earth-shattering reason why it has to be no. Right. Right. I mean, customers are just too hard to get. They're too hard to keep. And we always said to our employees, you know, our customer service people and such, I said, you know, don't be afraid to make a mistake. I said, everyone in here is free to go ahead and make a $10,000 mistake. Right. Yeah. You won't lose your job. As long as you were trying to do what you thought was best for the customer, you're fine. Now, we're going to talk about how not to make that mistake again. Yeah, right? yeah, learn from this one. Yeah, but yeah. you had to empower them to try and be a word we used to always use, awesome. Yeah. Right? And we used to call it the awesomeness. And, and that's what it was, was just this idea that anyone in the company could try and go above and beyond. Because we genuinely wanted people to succeed. So as we built out sort of the team below us, probably another year goes by, and Marcus and I are in China and in Hong Kong for a couple of lighting shows. And we walk through the show and we see that there's just been this huge breakthrough in new products coming. The LED industry, although it was already starting to do well, was about to explode. We were sitting on a patio bar on Victoria Harbor in Hong Kong. And I said to Marcus, we're in trouble. We got to hire a sales manager. I can't be the company's top salesman. Sure. We kind of nodded as we slowly sipped our beer, realizing what was coming. And I said, actually, I know exactly who we need to hire. At that moment, I sent an email from Hong Kong to a gentleman by the name of Gary Pounder, who was a customer of ours that I had gotten to know. Okay, yep. And I said to him, I'm getting on a plane tomorrow to fly back. The day after, I'm having lunch with you. Marcus and I have also always been very honest with ourselves about what we're not good at and what we don't know. We were doing all the purchasing, but neither of us really had a great background in purchasing. We were winging it in accounting. Again, didn't understand how any of it worked, just knew there was always money in the bank. And we started to understand that to do it properly, we had to get more talent around us. I know you have an interesting story about how you came to build your relationship with your banker. Can you tell me about that? We started off with RBC. We were growing, we had an operating line, and we had a wonderful account manager, and we were coming up on another spurt of growth where we, we wanted to up our line. And they brought in a, a regional vice president. I told her a bit about the business and the challenges and why we need the money. And she looked at me and said, have you ever thought of just slowing down? No, oh, no. And I remember looking at my account manager and I kind of bit my tongue for a second. And I said, you know what? Get out. I said, you don't understand anything about what's going on here. I said, you need to leave. And at that point, it was Marcus saying, well, you know, my brother knows this guy, Adrian, at, uh, at Scotia. And we interviewed with, with Adrian. And here was this young, aggressive banker, right, who wanted to make things happen, who wanted to go to bat for us and be our advocate in the bank, right? And it was like, that's, this is what we need. If you're going to work with us, you're going to have to live and die with us. You're going to have to treat it like it's your company. You're going to have to commit to doing this, right? Because we, we don't have room for people that aren't all in. And that served us well. I mean, we were very upfront, I think, with our key service providers that, that you are coming into the inner circle. And that's that. 
Yeah, and that's an important part of it is is um, you need to learn our business and our culture and what makes it tick. Mm-hmm. After that, apply your skill, but don't come the other way along. If you don't understand our business, like the RBC banker oh. is a good example of doing it the wrong way. Yeah. So you found Adrian to be that kind of banker. Um, Absolutely. He cared first, didn't he? That's what I've noticed with him. A hundred percent. And I, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny. We, I think we convince ourselves in business that that's a rare thing. I actually think there's lots of it out there. It's just that finding the connection with someone. Again, I used to have a saying with customers when we would interview new customers or present to new customers. And I'd say to them, you know, listen, if I can't picture having a beer with you, odds are we're not going to do a lot of business together because you're not going to get me. I'm not going to get you. And it's just not going to be all that it can be. And I think most business relationships start that way where, okay, it's, it's, a, it's a decent fit and this could be good. And maybe it is some degree of good for an extended period of time. But when you get that right personal connection, all of a sudden it's like, this can be way more. We can help each other. We can make this whole thing go faster. And that was 100%. That was Adrian. From the first time I met Nick, I could tell what an authentic, personable guy he was. He loves people and he's good to them. Nick's approach to relationships has been a key pillar in the success of his business strategies. We touched on it a bit with his partnership with Marcus, and we heard it again when he talked about setting his team up for success. Finding a fit in your hiring is incredibly important. Simply hiring based on skill won't result in a strong team. Shared values and enabling your team to do their best is critical. And his care for building and nurturing connections doesn't end at his internal team. Nick just spoke about the importance of making the customers feel cared for. Clearly, he did a great job because he convinced Gary Pounder, a former customer, to join the team. But it doesn't end there. A lot of Nick's success in solidifying his place in the market can be attributed to his relationships with suppliers. When we got started, we found a factory that we liked. We had been researching for months before we actually started doing business. And we found one particular factory where I kind of hit it off with the the account manager, whoever, over in China. And he knew we weren't even a business yet, that we weren't anything. Right. But his personality was such that he was happy to invest time and get to know me. And they ended up becoming our biggest supplier for many, many years. And various staff at that company became good personal friends of ours. Hmm. Same thing, part of the family, yep. hey? Yep, yeah. And there were times when we were in trouble and we needed them to work a miracle, and they always did. And there were times where they really needed us to do something, take a delivery of something, order a little extra of something. And if it was important enough for them to ask, it was important enough for us to do it. And so that really became our style. And actually, you now, I never really thought of it that way. That really is the theme through the whole company is yep. that it's just very personal, that everything matters on both sides of the equation. We found that over the course of the years, we'd, we'd talk to some of our competitors of similar size. And we'd say, well, how many factories do you deal with? They'd be like, 30. They'd be like, how many do you deal with? And we'd be like, five. It's like, <laughs> we'd be like, how? Yeah. What are we doing wrong? And then yeah. what we found out is that we were doing it right. You know, we were trying to have our factories be successful uh, with the idea that if they were successful, they'd be a better supplier to us. 
And I believe that. I think it's the same thing with customers. You know, you need your suppliers to make money and you need your customers to make money so that they can stay as your suppliers and as your customers. I even noticed that during COVID because you did get a lot of concessions mm-hmm. and accommodations and whatnot from yeah. the factories, which gave you that advantage during COVID that yeah. you had stuff that you could actually yeah. deliver because you'd had that historical relationship. So there's a good example, too, of when problems arise, the serendipity is of the relationship mm-hmm. that you built before that. It really was amazing how quickly people were willing to help us, even though they were going through difficult times too. Yeah, you know, and it it is funny too, because I think in this day and age, you know, we all think about technology and with AI coming on and, and, and so many different ways to interact with your customer without a live human being, right? Yeah. And yet I look back at us building a very successful business and everything we're talking about goes back to person to person things. Yeah. Right, we're not sitting here talking about our website. It was a great website. Our ERP system, which was a wonderful ERP system, but we don't talk about it as a cause of our success, right? Yeah. We talk about it as a a tool we used. Yeah, it was the catalyst to make you more successful Mm -hmm. because it combined and connected everybody who made the success. Exactly. And and but it it still always comes back to you know that time we went out for dinner with someone, or that time we went to a hockey game, or that time that guy was in trouble and and called us and said, hey, I really screwed up on a job and we'd be there and help him out, right? It's, uh, it is funny how we, we think business has changed so much, but really only certain parts of it has changed. Yeah. And you feel that's going to continue. That's not oh. something that's um, on its way out. You know, it's funny when times are tough, you kind of see the reality a bit more clearly, right? Yeah. I, I, again, another saying I always had was, you know, other things being equal, people buy from who they like. Even with a great team behind you, a firm foundation, and shared values, there are still bound to be learning opportunities in any business. The success they saw from their approach had delayed the inevitable for a few years, but while they aren't the only things that matter, numbers and finances do serve as an important piece of the puzzle. This is a lesson Nick and Marcus learned a few years into premise. We sort of realized we were coming up on a double down moment where Mm. we were either going to have to borrow a lot more money so that we could get a lot bigger or we were going to have to look at an exit. But again, Marcus and I at that point, we didn't want partners. We didn't want anybody to tell us how to do what we already knew how to do. We had really gotten our business into a groove where it was performing and we didn't want to disrupt that. But by the same token, we hadn't really made a ton of money yet. And so the idea of going many millions of dollars further into debt was a challenging thing for us. We went to Adrian and sort of said, you know, we might have to borrow a lot more money, but we're also thinking maybe maybe we'll sell. And he kind of looked at our books and said, guys, you, you, you're not ready for either of those things. Yeah. Yeah. We're like, what do you mean? We're, you know, we're this great profitable company. He's like, yeah, but you're a mess. Your books, like we, we just never paid attention to that. We were sort of a company that ran without math. We, of course, we did math. We, we, we calculated, you know, payroll. We set our pricing and all that, but we never really dug into it because every month there was a bit more money than there was the month before. Right. 
and all our bills were paid. So we're like, ah, profit. Let's keep going. And if you're just going to keep doing what you're doing, I guess it's not such a big deal. But when you start contemplating a big change like reinvestment or selling, all of a sudden it, it matters completely. And so our banker said, guys, enough's enough. You need a CFO. I said, a CFO? Okay, a CFO. So like a, like a fancy accountant. I get it. We've got an accountant, but now we're going to get a fancy accountant because I have no <laughs> idea what a CFO yeah. does. This is actually the first time I met Mick. He had come to me when I was working as a fractional CFO to get their books in order. His banker, Adrian, who I'd worked with before, astutely said that the finance function was now an important need for their future success and suggested they call me. Turns out they caught this just in time. While they had a finance team in place, the business itself had outpaced their experience and capacities. I joined the team and within nine months, we trained them up and installed a next level financial and business operations system. This enabled us to treat every month end like a year end and to forecast all of the business's needs accurately and quickly. This fostered further growth and proved invaluable during the COVID-19 pandemic and then ultimately in the sale of the business. That said, what was most crucial to their success was the attitude. They went into the situation recognizing it was a weak spot for them. And instead of getting hung up on being stubborn, Nick came through to the other side more knowledgeable. His willingness to learn, listen to others, and his decisiveness makes Nick a good businessman. And he's proof that you can be successful without sacrificing your values at any point along the way. I thought it was about just cleaning up our books, like fixing our ledger. But then realizing it is so much more than that. It's amazing how far you can go. You know, we were at basically a $25 million company spitting out a good amount of profit, but not really understanding where the profit came from yeah. and what things ate into it and what things could be improved and what things are, are sort of immovable objects. It's, it's amazing. That was a real turning point for us. You know, at that point, we kind of knew we're probably going to sell. You've heard me talk about serendipity. Oh, yeah. It sounds like there's lots of serendipities that you see along your path. Yeah, it, you look back and you're like, Jesus, that's how could all of that happen that way? Yeah. Right? Yeah. We got so many good breaks. And it, there was a point where, the, you know, again, we'd always say to ourselves, if we hit something, a, a challenging period, we'd say, it'll, it'll always work out. It always works out for us. Something will happen. <laughs> it'll you've been work. far enough along, that's what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the fact that we were always proactive, we were always ahead of the curve in terms of reinvesting in the company. And, you know, we never really took a lot of money out. That the company was healthy and pliable. And, and the people we brought in were talented and nimble. And that just created a situation where we could trust it. Yeah. Right? We could just trust it. it. Something good would happen. To me, Nick is both fearless and humble. So I'm not surprised when he chalks some of his success up to luck. From my vantage point, sure, they had good fortune. But it was their pattern of wise decision making that put them in the right places at the right times. Business karma, right? I got to tell you, I do believe that that's what happens, that, that, you know, our customers, we showed them how good we were, right? Yeah. We used to love it when people would come to us with problems 
because a customer's problem is, is an opportunity. Yeah. You've got a chance to be their savior. And I loved that. And we, we taught our staff to do that. The flaw in almost every business out there that I've seen, and I've worked for enough and been involved with enough, is that they all talk the talk. They all say these things. Yeah. They have mission statements and, and, and all these things, except when the rubber meets the road and it gets hard. And we had to face that a couple of times early in our business where Marcus and I had to look at each other and say, okay, are, are we going to eat this loss to do the right thing? And I guess the first time we said, yes, we're going to, and it went well for us and we got a lot more business out of that customer. And then we went, oh, wait, this, maybe this works. This is actually how it works. Yeah. For a guy who hasn't been in school since he was a teenager, Nick is never tired of learning new lessons which inform his decisions. And so it came to be that he knew selling his company was the right but still painful decision. When you make the decision to sell the company, there's initially the the emotional part of it, which is a lot trickier than you think it's going to be. Now, it's not just you stopping but it's the company continuing without you. It is something, if you've never been through it, no matter what you think, you are not prepared. You are just not prepared. Despite the difficulty of letting go, Nick found solace in watching the success of a team he spent so much time nurturing and growing. I had the heads of other lighting companies trying to call me, saying, I'll hire your staff. It's almost like a proud father moment, right? When sure. when you see the staff you've trained, most of them who had never worked in lighting before they came to yeah. us, yeah. other than a handful, get snapped up and offered great jobs where they're going to be looked at as a high performer, a new great asset in their company. So that, that for me, made me very proud. Yeah. I mean, that's a success that over yeah. and above the dollars and cents of it all at the end of the day, for sure. Yeah, yeah absolutely. As he ponders his path to success, Nick is happy to share his experience and insight with anyone who might be considering a similar track. His first piece of advice, always be open to learning. The ability to be honest with yourself about your skills, about your product, your services, the ability to really be frank with yourself, I think is absolutely critical. You should be your harshest critic, but you should also be quick to forgive yourself. Next is putting people and real relationships above everything else. I used to have a a saying in the office that said, if I don't hear raucous laughter by 10 a.m. somewhere in the office, I'm going to come out and dance like a monkey until people laugh and (laughs) have fun. We're going to make it happen. We're going to make it happen. Going to a place every day that is fun and enjoyable, where you feel safe and valued, is critical, right? I mean, in the beginning with a small business, it's you. And maybe you can get it up off the ground, but eventually you're going to need a team. Yeah. And they're going to have to want to share in your success. My point would be, be honest, be happy and be fun, be fair and be generous when you do start making money. We always paid, I think, well above market rate and tried to reward our people, not just with money, but with many other things. I think you have to do those types of things. And finally, and not surprisingly, 
Nick suggests you find a good partner. I'd say that if you're going to find one, make sure you can trust them with your life. Having played a small role in this story, I must say, I'm very proud to share Nick's journey with you. People start businesses for all sorts of reasons, but they all have different measures of success. For Nick, yes, it was about making a living, which he definitely did, and then some. But it was also about working with people, getting to know them, and learning important lessons from everyone he encountered. Keeping staff and customers happy while sticking to your guns is not always easy. But Nick Wagner proved it can be done, and I hope you found his story as inspiring as I did. Thanks again to Nick for being on the show and to you for listening to A CFO's Diary, Pathways to Growth. You can follow and learn more about this podcast at SavvyCFO.CPA or wherever you get your podcasts. Also make sure to rate and review. I'm Don Cameron, and I hope our pathways cross again.